Hi, welcome back to our monthly Neutra Champion podcast. I'm Ting Ming, your host for this podcast. In this episode, we will be finding out more about the link between cancer and nutrition intervention from Dr. Janet Slosh, who is currently the Clinical Research Fellow at the National Centre for Naturopathic Medicine at the Southern Cross University. Dr. Slosh has published nearly 80 papers specialising in herbal medicines and oncology, nutrition and dietetics, and nutritional biochemistry. Just last month, she and her colleagues published a paper in Frontiers in Oncology on how the use of cannabidiol, CBD, and tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, has shown to be safe in patients suffering from brain cancer and could even improve their quality of life, sleep, and functional well-being. The paper has hit over 4,400 views since it was first published on May 21st. Hi, Dr. Slosh. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. Um, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The study that we mentioned just now is, in fact, the first you have conducted using medicinal cannabis. Can you tell us more about the key findings of this study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a fabulous study in the end because what we found was that we had a, a one-to-one ratio of the cannabidiol to tetrahydro, which is basically CBD to THC, and a four to one, so a much higher dose of THC. And we found that both was actually really well tolerated. We didn't have any really what's called severe adverse reactions to it. We did have some side effects, which were just normal side effects that you come across from medicinal cannabis. But what we did find, it was statistically significant for their physical functionality, for their sleep, um, Probably I would say some of their pain as well, but definitely their ability to function on a daily, daily um, basis. But most importantly, also their quality of life, because it's actually quite poor in this group of people. I see. How did you come to uh, decide to use medicinal cannabis in the first place? Yeah, my background is actually in oncology. So I've been working uh, with patients uh, in oncology for like over 20 years. And I work in with a lot of the different medical oncologists, the surgeons from there as well. And we were seeing a lot of people who had started using medicinal cannabis. Uh, A lot of them actually black market, unfortunately. But there was a lot of interest in that particular area. So we decided to do a literature review and um, found in particular a lot of good research for people with brain tumours. And because these people also have such a poor prognostic outcome, you know, normally when they get diagnosed, they're only given usually between six to 18 months to live. And it usually always comes back. If we could actually help them, like nutritionally or with medicinal cannabis, with their standard treatment to extend that as well as have better quality of life, that would be fantastic. So but because we didn't know if it would or wouldn't, we had to do this particular study to start. Yeah, and another thing is um, people might be um, curious about cannabis because um, it is also considered a form of, you know, like recreational drug. So uh, when you decided to use this uh, as um, a medical intervention, how do you all maybe say need to persuade, need to uh, educate your patients when you all do this kind of uh, research? Yeah, we actually had to talk to them at the beginning because we actually got inundated with people. But we had to explain to them that recreational use and medicinal cannabis use is completely different. So this is not about smoking it or having things. You don't get a real high from having medicinal cannabis because this is an actual oil. 
It's an extract from a whole plant. It's not just taken from like a flower or the bud where they then smoke and, and have that like high recreational type feeling. In most of the cases when we take this particular oil, the first thing it does is actually make them tired and drowsy. <laughs> so that was one of the reasons that we did actually explain to them. And the other thing is that, you know, a lot of people look into this to see if it can actually help shrink their tumours or, you know, work with treatment. And again, this, this trial, we did actually look at efficacy as a secondary outcome, hoping to see if we can then move on to uh, an efficacy trial with placebo. So um, that, again, was explaining to them that it may actually help their treatment and it may potentially be able to, to be looked at in, in the future for that. Okay, so these are some of the future uh, research priorities. Yes, absolutely. I see. And uh, because this is a new uh, intervention, new nutritional intervention, so other than medicinal cannabis, right, may I know what are some of the other types of um, nutritional intervention that you have um, used in the past um, or explored in the past for these cancer patients? Yeah, we've actually done quite a lot. We did a lot between recent, like literature reviews, um, commentaries. We've done other clinical trials in this space as well. Um, some of the other ones that we found was that B12 was helpful in reducing the onset and severity of what's called chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, so numbness, tingling and pain that can hand, happen in their hands and feet with certain chemotherapy drugs. That was a, a clinical trial that we actually conducted. Actually, there was two clinical trials in regards to that, which was found to be beneficial. We also did um, a number of other ones that actually looked at diet in particular. And in that particular literature review, we actually found the Western diet, which is, you know, hamburgers, chips, soft drinks, all that type of processed food, was actually the highest diet linked with it, with increased risk of cancer. So. Yeah, so one of the, the better ones that were actually found was considered to be the unprocessed, more towards the Mediterranean-style diet, was actually found to be of benefit. I see. Okay, okay. And because um, you are a clinical researcher and you have a lot of um, interactions with the patients, so may I know what are some of the real-life experience that have uh, perhaps left a very deep impression on you when you see like improvement in their, in their quality of life? Oh, look, I can tell you, I have so many stories I could tell you, but I'll tell you some from the, the cannabis study first. Um, okay. in, in some of those, we found some remarkable changes clinically for them. Um, one in particular was a lady who was in a wheelchair was, who was actually able to stand up after taking the cannabis. Another one was actually able to move. Another one was able to start putting sentences together, like she wanted to say yes, but would say no. And though that started to become a lot clearer, we had another lady who, um, because can, like brain cancer can change people's personality, she was actually quite angry, and she was she was actually a nurse, and and could see that her behaviour wasn't normal. But after one month of taking the cannabis, she was actually back to herself, which was fantastic for her and her family, and was just able to, to interact as normal. On a, another side, I see a lot of people who I help because um, I see people in practice as well, uh, actually get through chemotherapy or treatment so much better. We can decrease a lot of their nausea. We can actually help them keep their weight on in most cases. But most people think you lose weight during chemo. A lot of people actually put weight on. <laughs> oh, so it's, okay. Yeah. That's, what that's because of the intervention. 
That's because of part of the intervention, yes, and that they become very tired and they don't do a lot of exercise and then they crave different things like carbohydrates and foods, which then basically puts on weight. So we can work with their diet, with their change of taste and foods that they can actually increase to help them get through treatment so much better. So, also, in other words, the, um, the use of medicinal cannabis has helped to improve their appetite. Yes, it definitely helps their appetite. So, and it's also helps to reduce a lot of their nausea that they have. It also reduces a lot of pain that they experience as well. So there's so many different things that it can actually be of benefit, but it's not right for everybody. Okay. Uh, and let's see, uh, before the use of uh, medicinal cannabis, right, what are some of the other ways that you have tried uh, to help patients improve their appetite or quality of life? There's a number of things. Number one is definitely their what they eat, making sure they're exercising, making sure that they're actually sleeping. There's a number of nutrients that you can also use as well. You mean ginger has also been looked at for, for nausea, um, but not everybody can actually take it. Same thing with peppermint as well. Um, and you have to be careful. Like low vitamin D is also linked with a lot more pain and fatigue and can be reduced through things. So we do actually look at that quite a bit as well. Um, as well as B12, like I know that I just talked about peripheral neuropathy, but if anybody has like liver metastases or liver type cancers or anything in regards to that, it actually releases a lot of the B12 and they end up deficient. Oh, okay. So, and that can actually really affect how they think, how they feel, their energy. So that by just improving some of those, we can actually increase their quality of life. Okay, okay. Yeah, and another question is that I have heard from some companies um, that the lack of nutrition is one of the key leading causes of death in cancer patients. So from your experience, is that indeed the case? I think that depending on the type of cancer it is, because each cancer is its own disease, and some of them can be really aggressive. So it, it, in doing so, it will actually take over their body, and it's not just a lack of nutrition that that is the is affecting them. Uh, for other people, yes, there's certain times that certain nutrition, they will be deficient. So that can actually affect their disease outcome um, and their ability to fight back. You know, if, if they're not eating the right foods or having the right nutrients, their body will start using their, their muscles as an energy source, which they end up then what's called cacaccia, so wasting type of way. And then the cancer will take over and it will take up a lot of their nutrients, more than what their body um, has and that puts them into a very bad situation so to answer your question I think it can be both because of nutrient deficiencies as well as uh, the cancer itself okay. but every situation is different. Okay and so uh, how are the nutritional needs of cancer patients different from healthy individuals? So when you actually have a tumour your whole body actually changes and like there's a whole range of reasons why they think cancer actually starts, but all it needs is a perfect storm to actually to to form itself. Now, when someone actually has a, a tumour itself, and that, again, will depend on what type of cancer it actually is, uh, their body requirements for certain nutrients increases dramatically. Um, protein in particular, because it will actually take a lot of it up and it will actually then use a lot of the body's requirements actually increases so normally we only need like one gram or less of uh, protein per kilo of body weight a day during cancer and during treatment if you have a tumor or even during treatment your requirements go up from zero point so 1.2 to 1.5 grams of protein per okay. day 
Okay. You also need to stay hydrated. If you don't actually stay hydrated with fluids, that dehydration actually really affects your body. But then we also have certain other nutrients that can be affected, including vitamin D, including zinc, including some of your B vitamins. So there, there can be a range of different things that can be affected just by having uh, cancer itself. Okay. And in terms of the research, right, what do you think uh, is, um, is the, some of the big questions that are not yet addressed? And how do you think the nutrition industry and the scientific community can bridge this gap? Oh, I think that there's so many things that still need to be done. If we look at medicinal cannabis, we still have so many questions that need to be answered in proper uh, clinical trials. Um, and not just in, say, brain cancers, in a lot of other cancers as well, because, you know, there's so many questions saying, well, does it help with treatment? Do, does it? Things, a lot of information out there on the black market saying just a miracle type herb. But it's, it, it has so many properties, but it's not a miracle for every person and every disease state. So we still need to do a lot more research in that area if it is going to be used for cancer, not just for the, the symptomology of cancer. Mm. On the other side, on the other side, I think that a lot of research in nutrition for cancer is based on people losing weight okay. and rather than on foods and nutrients and that can actually help that particular type of cancer because cancer is not just one thing. It's 300 to 500 different diseases and each one of those is, is separate and needs to be addressed individually. Okay. So we need so much more research to be able to figure that out. And that's where instead of having this blanket title of saying cancer, it just has to be this type of cancer and not only that type of cancer, but whatever what those subtypes are as well. So yeah. there's so much more research and things that we need to do. It. How do we bridge that? We need to all work together. So mm -hmm. we need to have the, the medical fraternity, the, the natural therapy fraternity all work together the best practice and to get the best outcomes for, for people or patients with cancer. Indeed. So may I know what are some of your ongoing or upcoming cancer research projects? Yeah, so we like obviously we're doing we're wanting to do that next step in the, the cannabis and brain tumor trial. So at the moment we're looking at how to best go about that um, because we would like to do it with a placebo as well but there's also different delivery systems at the moment so we're trying to work out which is going to be the better one for them to go straight like it goes into the brain itself without having to cross the blood-brain barrier or go what's called first pass metabolism so that's one of my biggest ones that's coming up I see. In, the, in the cancer field okay okay so uh, in the very first place right uh, why and how did you come to specialize in oncology and nutrition oh <laughs> going right back obviously there's always some form of family type responses that gets you into a certain area and when I was initially studying my auntie actually had bowel cancer and chose not to do medical treatment but went and saw this person who was not qualified um, and he gave her all these different supplements and things from there and she she actually had a terrible death oh no and, okay and part of me when I was actually studying, decided that this is an area that I want to specialise in. I want to make sure that we do it evidence-based so that nobody actually has to go through what my, my auntie went through. Yeah. What were the supplements that that person gave? They gave quite a lot. So she was probably on um, up to, I would say, 25 different supplements Okay. Um, in quite high doses. And some of them were black market type things that are not mm -hmm. available uh, mm -hmm. to buy. 
but her cancer just progressed. They gave her some uh, fake promises. Is that the case? You absolutely spot on. They had fake promises, but even when her cancer was progressing, was not telling her what was actually going on. Like when she had severe diarrhea and it was burning coming out, though he was telling her that that was her cancer cells leaving okay. her body. Instead, it was basically the cancer was spreading so fast that it was causing her severe diarrhea and, and internal bleeding. Mm-hmm. So I a lot see. of false promises, and also, like I said, they didn't have the expertise in knowing what was going on. Indeed. So at that point, right, um, what were you actually studying or specialising in? I had only just, at that stage, I was probably second year or third year in naturopathy. Okay. And, it's, and then it, that put me on to, towards that, that route and interest. Mm-hmm. Mm. Otherwise, what, what do you think you would have um, uh, uh, specialised in? <laughs> Sport. I used sports, to be a, I yeah, I know I used to be a sports person, so that was a, a great interest. I see. So it comes something completely different. <laughs> okay, okay. Then what sports did you play in, in the past? Uh volleyball. Oh, so okay. indoor and beach volleyball. Okay, okay. Well, and what are some of the biggest challenges that you have met um throughout your clinical research career? Uh people who don't believe in what we do. Okay. So coming from the patients, from the doctors, the doctors. Okay. So there's so many doctors that I work with that are absolutely fantastic, and you know they're they're open with. They want to they want to know as well. You know they want to know what works and doesn't work in a in a proper scientific evidence based. But there's still a certain percentage of doctors who uh, don't want to know or do not believe in any nutritional medicine, herbal medicine at all, and a lot of those will always going to be a bit of a block I guess when we're trying to to do research but I think I guess it's also in our own fraternity as well even the natural therapies we have a lot of people who are so against the medical fraternity and they're just as bad as the other side on the medical so we have we have two people that are still very polarized with very strong opinions whereas we really actually need to to not do that and actually work together yeah, indeed. And how do you think um, has the you know the experience from the doctors changed throughout the years? Are they more receptive in in the recent years? Yes, absolutely. I would actually say that. You know, I think that the more that they're actually exposed to, it, the more that they can see that we're trying to conduct really robust and rigorous research in this particular area to try and help all of us. The more open that they're actually coming to us, they realise that we're not, you know. I, won't, I don't like the word charlatans or, or people doing things behind, but we are do, like we are scientists. We are actually medical professionals ourselves and that we do want to work together. How do you usually persuade the doctors to change their mind? <laughs> so funny. I don't actually know if I change people's minds, but maybe I do certain things is, is because of, I guess, the way that I speak to them and say, no, this is, this, is, this is research. This is where it's going. This is what we know. This is, not, this is what we don't know. And we need to, this is our, our big gap in knowledge. So we need to work with that and it needs to have all of us work together. And normally if you come from it in, in that particular angle and you show that there is mechanisms of action, there is, you have the knowledge base behind it, uh, it does actually really help. Yeah, I okay. guess it helps having a PhD at the School of Medicine as well. <laughs> oh yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> okay, and um, for, for your role, right, because you work a lot with the cancer patients and their uh, family members as well, and, you know, cancer patients, uh, some of them, maybe they are uh, at a very advanced stage. So 
I guess there's a lot of um, emotional stress on you as well when you you know interact with these patients because uh, sometimes they might the disease might progress so quickly that they might you know pass on anytime. So uh, how how do you cope with this? Like anything, you know, the part, I have a lot of people who do pass away and it's, it's one of those diseases, particularly when we're looking at brain cancer. And a lot of it has comes down to self-care. So I have two things. One, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death for myself and I'm not afraid of death for the person. And you want to make their passing, and especially when they get to a point, as peaceful and um, into, in a place that best suits them. And it's actually understanding that and actually talking to them about it and not being afraid to talk to them about dying and what it means and, like, what do they need to put into place and, and all that type of thing. You know, I talk to them about, you know, if they have kids, they need to write letters or, or do videos that they can play at, at certain uh, major events in, in their life. So it's one of the ways I definitely deal with it. But that's not something that's happened overnight. That's something I've, I've had to really work on over the 20 years. And it is about self-care. And it means I st- if someone dies, I still cry. I still light a candle. And I have those still emotions because I do care. Yes. But it's yes. also knowing that that they are, they have passed away, that they are going to be in a better place, whatever that is for them. Yeah. That, um, you know that after all, they, they still have peace in, in their last days. They still manage to, uh, they, they are willing to face death. Um you know, like uh, able to talk about it and do some meaningful things yes. with, with their family, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and how has this also impacted your view towards life? This is like a very big philosophical question. That I, I know, I'm isn't it? But, it, but you're actually right. Like dealing with people who, you know, so many people are so young that get diagnosed with cancer and a lot of them, you know, a lot of them don't live. It really makes you sit back and say, you know what, you need to live life every day. And that even if you're if you're sick or you have cancer, you still need to live every day. And that's for me as well. So what is the most important things? You know, what are my my priorities? Make sure that I actually live them out as well. So because I don't want to have regrets. Yeah. I should I want to be able to, you know, you see a lot of people where they work and work and work and then they, they retire and then they end up having like cardiovascular disease or cancer and they don't get to to enjoy the bits yeah. and pieces. So what it has made me is make sure that I connect with people who I love and care with more often. I make the effort. I make sure that I go on holidays when I need to, you know, so that I get to see things, not so much these days with COVID, yeah. but, um, you know, it, it, it's making sure that I stop. And that is what I actually learned as well. And, again, mm-hmm. like I said, don't have re- regrets. If, if something's bothering me, I want to talk to that particular person about it so that we clear it. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a very good reminder for all of us because, um, you know, maybe during because of COVID and a lot of uh, work-life balance has been mixed up. And yeah, so I guess it's a very good reminder for us to, you know, really uh, take a slower pace and think about what really is the priority in, in yeah. our lives. Absolutely. I definitely think COVID has actually done that for a lot of people who they haven't thought about it before. I mean, I get to face it every day. But I think it's made a, a big difference for a lot of people through, over the, the, throughout the whole world. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, thank you so much again, Dr. Slosh, for joining me on this podcast, uh, sharing your experience and also some of the very important life lessons that you have learned uh, along the way as well. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.